From Johannesburg to Jerusalem, the world is always changing, growing and innovating. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he brings you the trendsetters, the thought leaders and those creating news before it happens. Only on the New Blue Review, your favorite Jewish culture and current affairs show. Every Monday at 9 a.m. right here on 101.9 High FM. You're listening to 101.9 High FM. I'm Benji Shulman. This is the New Blue Review. Welcome to the program on this Monday morning. So good to be with you. And we're looking forward to a cracking show later on. We're going to be talking, as we always do, to Rob Hutchinson from Dear South Africa, checking in with what's going on in Parliament. So do stay tuned for that. But I'm very excited to have on the line as our guest for this week, Arlene Guests. She is a journalist and an editor. And we have a very interesting piece of aviation, Jewish, South African history that we're going to be looking at because Arlene has looked at uh, and edited a book of her late husband, who was a pilot for SAA as well as the SADF and a, and a whole range of others and has some fascinating stories. And she herself uh, was a journalist here in South Africa many years ago at the Cape Artists and the, and the Tribune and uh, and then has worked all over the world, including at the likes of CNN. So she uh, knows about how to tell a good story. And she has a good story to tell. Arlene, welcome to the New Blue Review. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Benji, and I'm delighted to be here. Let's understand the motivation of the book. Why did you decide to publish your husband's memoirs? Okay, so what happened was, as you mentioned, Robert uh, Robert Shapiro was a pilot for um, many years. He was a lifelong pilot. He dreamed of it from when he was a child. And he had this incredible career. He started off in the South African Air Force. He then moved on to South African uh, Airways. And then he was actually seconded out by SAA to a Japanese airline, which we can talk about later as to how and why that happened. But he had this absolutely fascinating career, which took him all over the world. And he retired uh, in his early 50s. He took early retirement um, and he wanted to write a memoir. Because us, we had a son, we have a son, Morgan, and um, Morgan was always fascinated by his stories, and Robert was the most wonderful storyteller. So he decided to sit down and write this memoir. And being Robert, he sat down with his notepads and just churned it out, and wanted me to edit it because that's what I do for a living. Uh, and you know, I agreed with some trepidation, I have to tell you. But then, terribly tragically for us, he was diagnosed with with mesothelioma, which is a very rare cancer of the lining of the lung, um, shortly after, some years after he retired. And he had written the manuscript. He then completed the manuscript, and he very badly wanted to get it published. And after he died, I, you know, finished the edit of the manuscript and uh, was lucky enough that Jonathan Ball was interested in publishing it. So that's how this book came to into being. It's it's called Secrets from the Cockpit. Um, you know, it's about pilots behaving badly and other flying stories. But it's the, the, there are a lot of other flying stories. It's not just a sort of tabloidy look at, at you know pilots behaving badly. So, so very personal, um, personal project in some respects, but also one that fits into a long tradition of of piloting stories and aviation stories in South Africa, right from. Uh, right from actually from around the early 1900s, you've had airplanes flying in South Africa. The first first flight was actually just down the road from 
from the studio where where we broadcast from uh, interestingly and and so a, another another addition to that to that pantheon of writing and especially SAA because SAA I think in the last say 20 years most South Africans would have associated it with the issues of state capture or how to run an airline in a in a highly competitive global world but when Robert was flying at SAA it was kind of the big pinnacle state-owned airline and everything that came with it. And you spend quite a lot of time in the book talking about that. Yes, I mean, SAA was, you know, those were the glory days of SAA. Uh, tamped down a little bit by sanctions because it, it lost a lot of roots during the sanctions years. But that's, that, that is also something we'll talk about later. But yes, when Robert joined, it was incredibly glamorous first class, which I used to get to fly in because, you know, as a pilot's wife was really amazing. They used to give us these wonderful gifts. The food was good. Even in economy class, the food was okay. And, you know, the, 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 um, cabin, st- the cabin crew had these beautiful designer uniforms. You'd go on a trip and you'd stay in a really, really nice hotel in a world capital. Um, Robert recalls in the book about how they'd be given all this money as meal allowance. They'd get this sort of per diem meal allowance and it would be calculated on what it would cost to eat three meals a day in whatever hotel they were staying in. And, you know, as you know, hotels tend to charge a lot for their food. So you, they would get a lot of money and they could spend a week in a place like uh, Rio or Lisbon or even the UK and they had so much money Robert said they used to call it monopoly money and also look that was back in the day we're talking about the early 80s here where one South African rand was worth a dollar 25 so the, the money went quite far as long as they didn't eat in the hotel um, and you know he at that stage was very young having a, a blast sort of flying around the world as, as did the rest of the cabin crew but yes SAA was highly highly regarded I remember at the time it was one of I think only two African airlines and you know that had all the necessary kind of qualifications and categorizations to fly into JFK. Uh, it, and it was very highly considered for its safety record and for, for its service and for everything else. It's absolutely fascinating and interesting to see how that has come back, that, that idea of, of, of what an airline means in the world. There's a couple of interesting pop culture things happening at the moment with airlines. So it's interesting that this book should be coming out now and now in terms of the the debate around SAA, I think it's an interesting addition to, to that conversation. Yes, the other side of it, of course, is yeah. piloting in the in 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 the in the war because uh, the border war. A lot of South African Jews and white South Africans of of that era would know the border war in Angola, but from the ground. Very unusual to hear a pilot's perspective. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, this was another thing that we found interesting when when he started writing this book, because what he did was he started writing down his stories, and then he started sharing them with friends. He'd email them to, to all his friends and family, and they loved it. And several of them said to us that, you know, they had indeed been conscripts uh, in, in the army at that point. They felt that this, their story hadn't been told. So they loved the fact that... This story was now coming out. In fact, I heard from some, one of my son's friends the other day who was reading the book that she said, oh, her father was in the army. You know, he was also conscripted. He was part of that era. And it really made her happy to know what he had done and to see it from his point of view. But, yes, to go back to Robert as a pilot and uh, and how rare to see it from the air, there were very, very, very few Jewish pilots. Robert was told he was, I think, the third Jewish pilot to have um, soloed in, in the air force at the time 
And a large, not a large part, but a significant part of this book talks about Robert's experiences as a Jew in the military. He encountered enormous anti-Semitism. Um, he, he, he's a very funny guy and a very funny writer, Robert. So, he, you know, he makes it sound very funny, but actually it wasn't. He talks about, you know, pilots beating him up. It was hugely competitive to get into the Air Force. He was one of a minute percentage of people who got, got in. And, to be honest, nobody expected him to make it. Um, we were both at Hertzlia, Robert and I, uh, and this was not a career that most of the Jewish boys, and, and piloting was a male career at that time, that most of the Jewish boys w- wanted to go into. And so Robert, you know, not only when he got into the Air Force was sort of subjected to the, 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 the anti-Semitism within the, the, the Army, uh, and then later the Air Force, but he was mocked at school as well because nobody thought he would make it. You know, they, they just they didn't think he'd get in. They thought that, that this was a job open to Afrikaners because that was the, uh, you know, the zeitgeist of the, 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 the political power of the time. Um, and, you know, Robert was not one of these sort of standout students. He was just determined. And he put up with this. He put up with this when we were at school. And, and I remember this because we were at school together. He was ahead of me at school, but it was a small school and we knew each other. And I, I remember how people used to say, oh, this is ridiculous. You know, no one from Hertzley is going to become a pilot. And when he was accepted, I was still uh, in high school. And, um, you know, I just remember the teachers suddenly citing him as this great example of what you can do if you persevere. But uh, that memory of of not being accepted and the difficult choices, that is something that that persisted. And and Robert does talk about that a lot in the book. And, you know, I I think it has some sort of valuable object lessons for anybody considering, you know, a a different kind of career or a different path. Yeah, absolutely. It is interesting because I think that when you listen to Jews in the military, in the Bush War and Gola War, there often is a discussion around the how do I say, like the, the, the interactions between the Jewish community and Afrikaners who were, who were fighting. But what's interesting for me in the book is that in some ways the pilots who got into, into the Air Force were a kind of much higher caste of the society. They weren't people from the farms. Often when you hear about the border war, you hear about Jews interacting with Afrikaners who maybe hadn't worn that many pairs of shoes in their, in their lives. Whereas from the book, it sounds like it was almost you know, the people like the Bordebont and, and other, other kinds of high class part of, of, of African society where it seems as though the anti-Semitism was even more rife than it was on the ground. Perhaps partially true. I, I think what happened with the Air Force was, you know, anybody who got into pilots to flying school, um, and then they had to do officer training, they were part of the elite. And in fact, it was pointed out to me when I was talking about the book to somebody who was in the Air Force that the anti-Semitism was worse in the army. But what was different was, you know, as, as you know, the men of our, my generation, of Robert's generation were conscripted. Uh, so when you finished matric, you went and either went into the army straight away or you went to university and you deferred your army training till afterwards. And if you deferred, you would go in as an officer. So presumably your experience was different to, to when, uh, if you went in as a 17 or 18 year old and, you know, you were a soldier on the ground. Um, and, and you, you were dealing with other, you know, sort of teenagers who hadn't had the chance to mature. But the, the big difference and the big thing for Robert was if you wanted to be a pilot, you had to sign up for the permanent force. 
You made it a job. You signed a contract. Robert had to commit to 10 years. And that was a hugely controversial and difficult thing to do. Now, I mean, Robert was 17 when he went into the Air Force. When you're 17, I think just the idea of a 10-year contract, that's more than half your life, right? That's that's pretty frightening. Um, and it's a major commitment. Also, you know, as you know, I mean, the the Jewish communities community were not supporters of the National Party. They were not supporters of apartheid, and the, the you know many people obviously just didn't want to go into the into the army. And of course, some didn't, and some some deferred, some left the country and and didn't come back. But Robert actually made this massive commitment to go into what he knew would be a, a very different environment to the one he'd grown up where he'd be a real minority, you know, where he was constantly getting into trouble because he made it clear that he didn't actually agree with apartheid. You know, he tells one very funny story in the book where he says his, his, uh, his bunkmates asked him to speak Jewish. And, you know, he realized they wanted him to speak Hebrew. So he started off on this rant in, in Hebrew telling them what he thought of them. But he said as he was speaking, they were getting quieter and quieter and quieter. And he realized somewhere in the middle of this, he'd switched from Hebrew to Afrikaans. He had to pretend that he was joking. And he says, but he says they never asked him to speak Jewish again after that. We're talking to Aline Getz on 101.9 High FM. She is the editor of Secrets from the Cockpit, Pilots Behaving Badly and Other Flying Stories, written by Robert Shapiro. This is the New Blue Review with Benji Shulman. You're back with 101.9 Hi FM. I'm Benji Shulman. This is the New Blue Review. Talking to Arlene Getz today, editor of Secrets from the Cockpit, uh, about the life of her husband, Robert Shapiro. Now, let's talk about cultural entanglements of a different kind, Arlene. After SAA, he went and decided to fly for Nippon Air, Japanese Airways. How did that come about, and what was it like dealing with the Japanese? Okay, so what happened was, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the South African Airways routes were cut because of sanctions. You know, there were South Africa SAA couldn't fly to Australia, it couldn't fly to the US for a period, and SAA, which, as we discussed earlier, major flagship airline, needed wanted to, to keep these pilots. I mean, but didn't have enough flying for them, so they leased them out. This was quite a common practice. Then um, they would do. Sometimes they would lease out aircraft. Sometimes they would do what are called wet leases, where they would lease out aircraft and, and the crew to fly them. But uh, a Japanese airline called Nippon Cargo Airlines came along, and they actually they wanted to get some SAA pilots. But they did this unusual thing. They did not um, just let SAA pick the pilots. They chose the pilots themselves, and it was extremely difficult to get in. Um, they they uh, you, you know a lot of all fully qualified SAA pilots applied, pilots who were physically fit to fly, but then the Japanese did their own uh, medical exams on them, and, you know, a lot of them didn't make it because they were older and they were being held to the standards of, you know, a young man who uh, joining joining this airline. So, but anyway, Robert was one of the fortunate ones, and off he went to do flying training in Tokyo, and he encountered this completely different world. Um, Japan at that point, it was, you know, it, it was the early 90s, it was 
coming out of that bubble economy of the 80s when Japan, you know, things Japanese were just everywhere. There were those movies made about how the Japanese were sort of taking over the world, if you remember that. But now this bubble economy was, was ending, but Robert was there, as I say, on the tail end of it. So they arrive and now they've got to be retrained completely. Uh, and they had to pass, uh, exams for the JCAB, the, the, it's the Japan Civil Aviation Board. And things are done differently, uh, in Japan. Um, you know, and one of the things is uh, Robert was used to hierarchy, obviously from the airport and from, from, from the Air Force and from his days in South African Airways. But this was a different kind of hierarchy. Of course, there were language differences and things were very ritualistic. Robert called it kabuki flying. You were expected to do and say certain things during your training. Um, and then once you got into the actual line with other Western pilots, you could get back to whatever it was you were used to doing. But you had to pass these exams. And Robert recalls, for example, how they all had to sit down and write some exam. And the people who the, – the examiners – English was not their first language. And Robert believes they were just looking for keywords and answers of a certain length. So he says, you know, that they, they, in one particular exam, every single one of them misunderstood a question and, and got the answer wrong. But they all passed because he says they, they think it was because they all said the same things, had the keywords and got, got the length right. So he had that to, to, to deal with. But then, you know, there were also lots of cultural interactions and exchanges. He had to go and spend three months in Japan. Uh, Morgan, our son was, was an infant toddler at the time. I stayed in South Africa and they went and stayed in a hotel and they went off every day to this flight school. And it was a very different method of entertaining. You know, they, they were taken out to these bars and to these sushi restaurants. Vast amounts of money were spent. Robert made a name for himself because he didn't like sashimi, and apparently this was his his big name in the airline. But you know, also at that time, Japan wasn't quite as used to Westerners. Um, they used to create quite a stir these Western guys when they went on public transport. And one of the things Robert mentions was, you know. Um, there was a, a time when they were in a bar with one of their instructors and a Japanese woman, a somewhat tipsy Japanese woman, as Robert recalls, uh, came up and asked the instructor in Japanese if he would ask if she could touch their hairy chests because she was just so intrigued by all this body hair that they had, um, you know, which, uh, so, so anyway, Robert, you know, in his typical fashion said, well, we all agree, but we all thought she should have bought us supper first. The part he doesn't actually tell in that book was, I suspect it was his hairy chest that she most wanted to touch because Robert actually won a hairy chest competition once when we were on, all on a family cruise together. And he was very proud of this fact. But anyway, so he had, he had to deal with that. He had to deal with the different approaches to flying. Um, you know, he spoke a lot, for example, about how the this, this sort of the Japanese style was to do things by the book and you didn't improvise, you didn't take shortcuts, um, you, you just absolutely followed the script. A lot of the time people realized that the script would not necessarily be meaningless, but it wouldn't necessarily have to be followed in that way. And this, as I say, result, you know, resulted in some, some interesting cultural clashes. Another interesting story which which you relate in the book is passengers being able to to vote on their destination uh, <laughs> of their flight. Tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> that. That I think happened once, and I suspect it was Robert who probably didn't know where they were going. He talks about a flight when he was flying. I think it was seven two sevens. He was flying domestically, and they used to do this leg from Joburg to Kimberley and Bloemfontein. And he said one day they got into the 
Bloemfontein and they thought they were just going to Bloemfontein and then the uh, one of the cabin crew came in and said that um, they were, so, no, the passengers said they were supposed to be stopping in Kimberley. Pilots all looked at each other and said, said to the, the cabin crew member, ask, let's do a vote, ask the passengers where they think they're going. And the passengers just said, no, they're supposed to be going to Kimberley. So they duly flew to Kimberley, land in Kimberley. One of the ground people gets on and says, hi, it's very nice to see you, but what are you doing here? We don't have these flights on a Tuesday. <laughs> wow. Okay. It's like a, like a taxi. That's, that's uh, fantastic. Oli, one of the more recent elements of travel when it comes to airplanes, obviously the, the issue of terrorism is, is one thing. And, and the other one has been this, this thing of, of animals coming on the, on the flight, like safety animals to keep the, the passengers calm. Which I think probably maybe Robert didn't have to deal with, but but he had some other animal-related experiences and some other difficulties with passengers. Tell us yes. about what yes. that was like in the eighties. Yes. yes, it wasn't called air rage back then, and it's certainly obviously not related to what we're seeing now. These terrible things with people refusing to wear masks. But drunk passengers are not new, and because when you're in a, an aircraft cabin, you're at a slightly higher altitude than you probably used to, you will get drunk faster. So he, they'd often have problems with um, there was a sports team on board or supporters or something and people would get very drunk and they could get very abusive. So one of the things they did to calm them down back then was they'd invite them into the cockpit because he said often people would get quite intimidated when they were, when they'd walk into the cockpit, especially if it was at night and they'd see all these glowing lights and they'd see this was where it all happened and then they'd quieten down. But obviously that wasn't enough for some people. This was, as you say, back in the day when uh, cockpit doors did not have to be locked and they liked having people in the cockpit. Robert said it used to relieve the boredom a lot of the time on very long flights. But what they did that was, so if they would get a sort of ping from one of the cabin crew saying that uh, there was a sort of Rowdy bunch who was being obnoxious, they would lower the oxygen uh, in the in the plane. They would lower the oxygen levels. So Robert says the the way he explains it that the engineer would slowly raise the cabin altitude on the pressurization system, and that would reduce the oxygen supply and calm down the drinkers, and they would go to sleep. And he said, you know, in addition, this would lower the cabin temperature so they would, it would be cooler and they would be less act, less active. Um, and, you know, Robert Wright had really failed. Within an hour, everyone in the cabin would be asleep. And then in typical Robert fashion, he adds, the occasional cost was having to give supplementary oxygen to a couple of elderly folk, but the cabin staff never complained about that. So I, know, so I don't know if that's something that people want coming out, but I have been told it has been spoken about before, and it's certainly not something that I think is is done now. I think, as you know, when we all jammed into these metal tubes now with what's you know packed all around us, we we just sort of sweat it out and do whatever we have to, and no no one cares so much about what the temperature is back there. Yeah, certainly, I'm not sure that that would have made the the, the rule book in the Japanese airways. Now, the, the, the book is chock full, full of these sorts of stories, this kind of cavalier uh, approach to, well, not cavalier, but, but sort of, as you say, pilots be- behaving badly uh, that maybe you, you wouldn't really uh, see these days. What has the reception been like in, in the pilot fraternity and, and in, the wider, in the wider reading public? You know, the book's only been out a couple of weeks, and I'm actually really amazed at the, the positive reception it's been getting. You know, it's it's on the top seller list in South Africa. I saw Exclusive has it featured um, as one of its best-selling biographies. It's up there with, you know, Barack Obama and, and Elon Musk, which I'm, I'm just amazed about. And people seem to be really enjoying it. You know, the book 
as I say, it's funny, but it's, it's more than just funny. It is a slice of aviation history. There's a lot that we haven't had a chance to discuss, but you know, you learn a lot about the techniques of flying, navigation errors, what, what they did and learned in those days before, you know, this, the, before even satellite navigation. Um, there's one section, for example, where Robert talks about the navigation error, which caused that Korean airline flight 007 to go off course and get shot down by the Soviets back. I think that was the early eighties. Um, you know, so, so there's all of that stuff there, but the reception now has been, as I say, quite amazing. The aviation geeks, and you know, if you're crazy about flying, you are just crazy about it, are loving it. Um, I'm hearing from people who knew Robert from back in the Air Force days, and they are saying they remembered him as a funny guy, but they didn't realize he was so good at telling stories. Um, you know, and yeah, it's, 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 it's been a, a great reception. Also internationally, you know, on Amazon, it was the number one new release, um, in various categories and pe- people do seem to be enjoying it. And I think they're not expecting it to be as funny as it is while actually making, you know, serious points. And, and again, I think there is a particular message there for the Jewish community. Anti-Semitism right now, as we know, is, is, uh, Rising, especially from where I'm sitting in the U.S., the, you know, we're seeing more and more hate crimes against Jews being reported. Uh, and I think that Robert brings a valuable perspective on, you know, perhaps how to deal with this and what it's like and, uh, you know, the, the perseverance that needs to sort of continue in the face of that. Oh, absolutely. And I think a fantastic read. You know, you brought it out in your summer, which I'm assuming is uh, a, a big time for, for reading books. But I can definitely see this as being a book that people will buy throughout the year. And when we finally get out of this pandemic and get to all go on holiday to the beach again, uh, then a, a great book for, for something like that as well. Yes, thank you. I hope everybody agrees that it's a, you know, it's a fun book. I just, I'm obviously my biggest regret is that Robert isn't the one who's talking to you about this, but I'm, I'm very grateful that I was able to get it published and get his memories out there. So I mean, if people do want to get the book, where can they get hold of it? It's being sold at the major bookstores chains in South Africa. You know, it's Take a Lot exclusive. Um, there are a bunch of online retailers and, um, then also it's on Amazon. It's on book depository. If you, if you just go online, and search for secrets from the cockpit. It should pop up on, on, on all of the various book selling sites. Or, well, or just one of your bookstores, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and, we, and we do need to support bookstores as well during this pandemic. Ani, thank you so much. Absolutely fascinating. I, I'm definitely going to be getting this book for a couple of people that, that I know that are, are, are big fans of, of flying. I think they're going to enjoy it uh, an enormous amount. So thank you for joining us and good luck with the rest of the launch of the book. Thank you very much, Benji. This was a great pleasure. Arlene gets there. She is the editor of uh, the new book on flying about her late husband and uh, everything that got into Robert Shapiro, Secrets from the Cockpit, Pilots Behaving Badly, and Other Flying Stories. We'll be back just after this.